Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a 1,000 certified organic family-owned operations across North America. Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter, of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thrivingfarmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. Hey, thriving farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And my guest today is Deirdre Birmingham, who is the co-owner and chief executive orchardist. Um, and she and her husband, John Biondi, managed the cider farm in Wisconsin. They are a 166-acre farm, including their 18-acre certified organic cider apple orchard. They started their orchard in 2003 by taking a class on grafting so they could get the English and French tannic apple varieties they wanted for the purpose of fermenting their apple juice to ciders and apple brandy. While she has three degrees in agriculture, she never took a class on horticulture, nor did she grow up on a farm. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. So share a little bit, you know, how did you get into, you know, a farm? It sounds like you actually didn't grow up on a farm. Right. I got born in Chicago and grew up in one of the northern suburbs. Um, but I started working with horses when I was nine years old. And uh, as I went through high school, I started thinking about life apart from a horse, which was not appealing. And I liked biology and, but not, you know, didn't want the environment of uh, human medicine, you know, kind of a clinic environment. I liked the outdoors. So I thought, oh, I'll go into, uh, I'll, I'll consider being an equine veterinarian. Mm. So I, I enrolled in the College of Agriculture and got more exposed to agriculture, learned I could live without a horse for a year. <laughs> and um, and then uh, that I, I went off into studying agriculture, but more applied towards um, humanitarian needs and uh, poverty and, and uh, world hunger. So I actually spent um, some years uh, working in agricultural development and primarily in Africa. Very cool. So, yeah. And uh, then kind of the connection to actually farming was when I was in graduate school at Wisconsin, University of Madison, Wisconsin. And um, I met John, who was who was not a student at all. He was in the in the business world. Um, but he, uh, actually had ideas on having a farm. Uh, so I, I like to tease that basically he married me to be his farmer because okay. I run a farm. But, uh, he, uh, he, he more runs our cidery and tasting room in Madison. Okay. Very cool. So, all right. So the farm is how far from Madison? Yeah, so we uh, we're about an hour, and our own cidery and tasting room is just forty five minutes from the farm. 
So that's okay. where we take the juice to ferment uh, to ciders. And that's why we grow the apples we do. They're strange apples. You don't want yeah. I tell people, eat my apples. You want to drink them. Yes. So that's interesting that you were very intentional about, you knew that you needed to be close to the population so people could come, you know, they don't want to drive 45 minutes out. Yeah. I wouldn't say we were that intentional. We basically over the years, we've wanted to do a farm-based business together. Um, and then finally in 2002, we had the opportunity to start looking for farmland uh, we did that in Wisconsin, in southern Wisconsin, where we're closer to family. And then we um, we found um, just a naturally beautiful piece of landscape. Uh, mm. It had been a farm, but nobody had lived there since 1959. Um, it, it needed work, but uh, we decided to buy it. And then uh, when we did that, that was in late fall. So we spent that winter thinking about well, what is that farm-based business going to be? Uh, we just knew we do things organically and that we also wanted to have some kind of um, high quality finished product. We didn't see ourselves, you know, selling raw vegetables, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so um, we landed on doing uh, ciders and apples. Uh, I mean, certainly there were hundreds of wild apple trees growing on the farm. So that easily suggested itself, but yeah. um yeah. And then we learned uh, that ciders are fermented like a wine. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, you don't make any high quality wine out of any old grape. So what sort of apple should we look for? And we learned that the English and French in particular develop varieties specifically for fermentation, some of which have tannins. Mm-hmm. So like in a wine, Grape that can give complexity and mouthfeel to the, to the final cider. So we thought, great. We'll buy those trees. And then we quickly learned those trees were not sold commercially in the United States back in 2003. Yeah. yeah. So we took a class on grafting and that was a very slow, deliberate way to start a business. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone because it's just, uh, you know, we didn't have a product in the marketplace for 10 years. So wow. it's a lot of investment. Yeah. Yeah. So then those varieties that you have to go to Europe and to get the the scions, or were you able to source those in the U.S., but not as trees? Yeah, exactly. We we took a class on grafting from someone who had some of these very varieties in his own small orchard. Okay. So, so that gave us a start. We could get some of the budwood or cyan wood uh, for the grafting. And, um, and then, uh, you know, he did some grafts for us also in years we could graft together. Uh, we still order root stocks, minor yep. <laughs> uh, orders to, uh, together to this day. So. Yeah, absolutely. So then, um, all right. So then we've got the trees growing. I'm assuming these trees get grown on standard rootstocks or are you growing them on the, the, the smaller ones? Yeah, we're, we're growing on what's called dwarfing. Um, we didn't start this when we were 25. (laughs) So, um, standard trees, you'll need to wait a lot longer for a tree to come into production. Whereas dwarfing trees, um, come into production much faster. They require more investment since they uh, uh-huh. need support like trellising or staking. In dry times, they need irrigation, um, but they're a smaller tree. So you can also manage them better organically. And, and that's just the kind of direction the industry is going. So um, so I 
basically though found my, found myself kind of pioneering the organic production of these varieties rare to the US in Midwest mm -hmm. conditions and trying to do them as a high density system. So it's still one big experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I obviously want to talk about the marketing side and all of that, but I want to stay for a little bit longer on production because we do fire ciders and one of the big ingredients of fire cider is apple cider vinegar. And we have a hard time finding good quality apple cider vinegar in Ohio. So we're to the point of maybe we want to actually have our own orchard for apple cider vinegar. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, organic apples. I know that's incredibly challenging and the aspect that you're not going for a perfect looking apple, I'm assuming is makes it a little bit easier, but share a little bit about kind of the struggles you've had and uh, what you've learned along the way for producing quality apples. Yeah, well, right. And quality is a is a subjective term there. Absolutely. So I think what you're doing is similar to us in that it's we're growing basically a, a processing apple. So I, I always my hats are off to my fellow organic growers who are growing for table consumption. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Because then you do have certain cosmetic standards that um, that you or I just wouldn't have if we're going to um, process the apples on farm, which is what we do. Nobody really sees them. I do, yeah. I do orchard tours. I, you know, we love to do that to help, to help market our brand and connect people to the brand. And we're, we're growing these very uh, specific varieties. They're, they're very challenging to grow. Uh, uh -huh. I didn't have anybody go to, to <laughs> guide me yeah. on Variety, so it's you know it's been kind of like being a data point of one in the U.S. Correct. Uh, trying to figure it out um, and um, apples uh, to grow apples east of the Rockies is challenging under any kind of system. Uh, we just have more insect and disease pressure than they do in like uh, the state of Washington, yes. where most yeah. of, most apples are grown in the U.S. So. So, um, and then if you're growing organically, uh, yes, that is, that is more challenging because more and more people are doing it and trying to figure it out. And when I got going, I, I learned of an organic grower who had a, a field day and I thought, oh, great, maybe there's some kind of group that's already organized and uh, doing these educational sessions. And no, that was just kind of a one-off <laughs> for uh -huh. a grant, a grant of, project that a grant funded project that he had. So, um, but, uh, I had, uh, some experience running a nonprofit. So I just said, well, maybe I can help us get organized. So, yeah. so, so we just formed a very simple network of organic tree fruit growers. And that has now evolved into an association called the organic fruit growers association. So it's kind of Midwest focused. Um, but it certainly is that, place where you can go and share ideas, ask questions, get answers. We um, have a newsletter and field days and um, and information. So so we're just trying to spur that that mm -hmm. movement. And so when you're organized together, it kind of gives you, um, you can then go out and request attention from like university research and extension systems. So, and that's what they need have a, a group to a group to be working with. So, yeah. So, so then anyway, yeah, your question, it is changing, but it, yeah. but it is being, it can be done and we're constantly learning. Where can people find more information on that association? Yeah, I would just uh, Google organic fruit growers association and that should, that should pull it up. 
Okay, very cool. So then um, with your with your growing of the apples, are you doing any specific sprays for like insects? Um, are you doing like, I know some growers are doing surround to try to keep some things away. Yeah, exactly. So I've, um, there's like 12 different insect pests and four diseases of apples. And so okay. that was just overwhelming to me when I started. <laughs> so I thought I was taking it kind of like, all right, I'm going to get down these one or two insect pests this year and these one or two diseases and not just try to work on all of them, all of them at once. And also I started out with just my little grafts in a tree nursery and just adding more and more grafts every year and then eventually planting out. So I was yeah. absorbing all information going to the Wisconsin Apple Growers Association meetings, the Great Lake Great Lakes Fruit Expo, and just, just learning. Um, and then also trying to determine kind of what, what I really need to focus on. And so with time, I've figured out I've got kind of one major disease that's lethal to the trees, and I've got one insect pest that is lethal to the to the trees. So that's where I focus a lot of effort, be it sprays or just our, our labor. Um, and, and so yes, uh, the surround that you mentioned is a tool I use, uh, to help manage plum curculio, uh, that is sometimes considered the Achilles heels, uh, of organic, uh, management. Uh, it is a, a pest that, that mostly causes just a blemish on the skin of the, of the fruit, but, um, if it gets out of hand, it can also, as kind of a second stage of its life, life cycle where it likes to come and feed on the actual apple as it's ripening. So um, that, gotcha. uh, but for me, it's, uh, the disease is fire blight. And then I have a, a borer, the round-headed apple tree borer that um, goes into the, primarily the trunk of the tree and starts eating it from the inside out. Oh gosh, that's not good. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, then I'm, I'm looking at pictures here that you sent over of your orchard. You're running um, a grass completely underneath, not trying to keep it clean. Right. So typically in orchards or vineyards, you're uh, running an herbicide strip to keep it clean underneath the trees. And so uh, we're, we're primarily using mulch. Uh, uh -huh. We also use a, a side mower. So I, I actually have a, a, a locally made mulcher so it can side discharge out of a wagon uh, that I pull yep. behind the tractor. Yeah, so that's really nice. And there's a local source of, of, uh, of wood mulch. And, uh, and then we, um, I mentioned the side mowing. So it's a front mounted mower that kind of bounces in and around the trees and tries to just keep things from seeding out. Yep. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, we started out just with a, a weed whacker. So and then yeah. we evolved and ran on the front of the tractor as we got from a few hundred trees to 16,000 trees. Yeah. So, but, and uh, what else? And we've done some cultivation of rows before we plant, uh, do that for two or three seasons if we can. So you can help, you know, turn in um, weed populations, put in cover crops that can have some allelopathic effects even on some, on some weeds, but uh, whenever, whenever we break the soil, till it, we're also just churning up a bunch of weed seeds. So uh -huh. there's a huge bank of ragweed seeds we've learned. So we also found thistle I'm like, oh my goodness. So look at all the thistle that came up. When uh -huh. we yes. Well, you know, there's, we've also, we've also tried using some landscape fabric. That's pretty labor intensive. And yep. we also have input that has to be taken up annually. 
you can't just leave it there. And uh, then, it, you know, it, it, it just winds up getting in the way cotton mowers and, and weeds get around it. And so it's, it's not really something that's worked well. And uh, for us, uh, some people can make it work, but it just hasn't, I haven't been able to, uh, to the point that other things can. And I also like the wood mulch in that it, it doesn't completely suppress the weeds at all, but it's also building soil organic matter. And that's just hugely important to us. And then in the dry years, um, it helps conserve moisture. So it's a kind of multi-purpose tool. Very cool. Um, so with the apple, so you grow the apples during the season and then let's talk harvest time. So I'm assuming every variety is harvested at slightly a different time. Yeah, we're going for maximum ripeness. So we'll leave them on the tree longer than you would for table apples. Um, Cause I want every bit of sugar, all the starch converted to sugar and to get all the tannins and acids out of that apple. So, uh, and then um, we also uh, don't mind if they fall on the ground, it helps us know that they're ripe. And in uh, the UK and Northern France where apples, like 50% of apples in the UK are grown for cider, hard cider. And um, they harvest them all off the ground. So, so we'll kind of do a combination of that, sometimes hand picking off the tree and sometimes shaking the tree, uh, getting them on the ground and picking them up off of there. Uh, and then we do, we'll do, we'll press some varieties separately, some varieties together. If I know they're going to be in the bottle or in your glass together, I might, and they're ripening at the same time, I'll, I'll press those together. Okay. So then, all right. So you're pressing together and I'm assuming when you bring the apples in, you're harvesting into big bins, they go into, I'm assuming a large walk-in cooler. Do they get like, um, go through a, a wash bath before you start pressing? Yeah. And, and we pretty much have a model of pick and press. So okay. yeah. I don't have, I don't have a cooler on the farm. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And, it, and I really haven't been able to make it pencil out since I don't intend to store apples. I'd rather store it as uh, juice. Yeah. 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 Or, or if I had more fermentation tanks, you can just even store it as, as cider. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so we, we harvest into bins and then they go into a bin dumper that goes onto a sorting table that then loads into a, a washer with brushes Mm -hmm. And then as it comes out, it goes through, we, we continue to sort and then it goes into a water bath and then it, and then it goes up an elevator into the mill, but it has a power washer on there. So they actually get triple washed Oh wow! and, yep. uh, yeah, and then they get milled and, and onto a, what we call a belt press. So it just through squeezes them through these rollers and it separates the juice, the juice drops down and then the pumice comes off. Ah, we, so it's, yeah. So it's not because I, most presses I've seen are just one of those, you know, a stack press, but this is where it's a constant feed. Yes. Uh-huh. It is. Right. Cool. Yeah. We started out with that, uh, the kind of stack or sometimes they're called rack and cloth presses. Yep. We've also had the accordion where they, it squeezes from side to side. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm assuming that infrastructure though, is quite the investment though, the scale you're at. It is, it is, you know, to grow tree fruits, you're basically talking about equipment and there's machinery, there's equipment involved. Um, so, you know, that's been, I mean, that can be challenging because I consider myself more of a biologist. I'm not a mechanic. Yeah. 
So that was kind of more my husband's role in the earlier days where, oh, sometimes he'd spend the whole weekend working on the tractor and the sprayer. <laughs> but yeah. uh yeah, or evening times and uh, going to get parts after work. Uh, he worked in Madison at the time. So, yeah. So, uh, but then, then as, um, it, you know, I started bringing on employees onto the farm and then shifting from like high school kids to adults who had experience, I was getting people that often had um, some mechanical experience and knew how to work with tools. So that was a huge a huge help and very much less than the pressure on my husband to spend his weekends repairing things. Yeah. And then also evolving to, you know, I went from having old tractors to finally getting a new orchard tractor, um, which is kind of my favorite piece of equipment, if you will. Um, it has a, a cab on it. So I'm not, yes. uh, you know, uh, I'm always, you always have to try to beat the winds when you're going to spray. So you're spraying early in the morning and, or in the evening. And, you know, as the wind picks up in the morning, <laughs> sometimes you're smelling like the liquid fish or getting some of that surround on you. Yes. And, uh, and I, you know, since I mentioned liquid fish, I'd like to note that I'm not just spraying, um, pesticides, of course, national organic uh, program approved pesticides, but I'm often just, I'm always putting liquid fish in the barrel. Um, I'll, I will harvest buckets of um, comfrey that we grow in the orchard also. So that's another kind of mulch that we use is growing comfrey in oh, some of the cool. rows. Yeah. And then stinging nettle, making teas out of that and putting those in the tank while I'm also using things like, like you mentioned, surround that is not a uh, an insecticide. That's just a deterrent. So it makes Correct. life miserable for for the plum curculio beetle. In my case, it can help also with apple maggot a bit. Um, so and I shove them, try to push them off into an outer row on a variety that the that that insect particularly likes. And then I might and I, I monitor. I think any good grower, whether you're uh, organic or IPM or whatever you want to call yourself, you are monitoring. So, I mean, you know what's going on and that's what keeps it interesting for those of us that like biology. I mean, that's what makes it really interesting. And, and so when that insect pest is kind of pushed out and active, I'll, I'll, I'll into this outer row of a variety it likes, then I'll come in there and, and hit it with a, a insecticide at night when my pollinators are put to bed, but that yep. insect is really active. So, so knowing that biology um, helps you also um, target your your interventions when they're needed. Yeah, that's a lot more complicated than just, you know, going out there and nozzling everything, but it uh, obviously yeah. makes the apples much safer for all of us. So that's very cool. Hi, this is Nicholas and Jenny. We are the proud owners of Crystal Organic Farm located in Newborn, Georgia. It's in about a, an hour east of Atlanta. I just realized today, actually talking to a friend of mine, this is my 30th year in organic farming. And so we've been certified all along. We raise organic vegetables, some fruits, also medicinal herbs. That's something that we're getting into. And uh, we've always been certified for 30 years. And my mother actually certified in the mid 80s. So this farm has been certified for a long, long time. We eat organic food. We source all local food. We're really into what we eat and where the food comes from. Jay and I, we were talking and going to the grocery store that, that even like organic, you have to read the labels. 
And uh, the word organic does not mean what it used to mean. And so when the Real Organic Project came on and we talked about it, it seemed like a great fit for us because it seems that they really are trying, the Real Organic Project is trying to, the word organic still to mean what it should mean. And for people like Jenny and I that are very committed to eating organic, there's a trust factor that this organic has lost for us anyway. So a Real Organic Project idea rhymes with us really well because of how we live our life. Not only because we're organic farmers, but even if we weren't organic farmers, we would seek something like that out. So mm -hmm. I think, yes, also for us, like the word organic has quite literally become super watered down with the introduction of hydroponics and different aspects of, you know, the organic farming. And so this label not only goes back to the roots of what organic farming used to mean, say when Nicholas started 30 years ago, but also, like he said, this reassurance moving forward that what you're getting is true organic product. And also the Real Organic Project looks at the health of the farm as a whole, the health of the employees, or if there's animals on the farm. And I think that's super important as well, because this word regenerative is also kind of being thrown around a lot or perhaps watered down as well. And so when you're looking at the farm as a whole, that's truly what regenerative means. But I feel like the Real Organic Project goes a step further than organic and than the word regenerative. Yeah, and, and one more thing is that certification costs money, organic certification, and is required to be part of the Real Organic Project. But there's so much money tied up in all this, and the fact that Real Organic Project is, is working on donations, it's not like a, a, an organization that tries to grab more money. Well, it's working from farmers and it, at the grassroots level, started by farmers, there's farmers running it, farmers working for it, like people that have true experience in farming are the Real Organic Project. It's not just someone sitting behind a desk that's never stepped foot on a farm um, and understands what it takes to farm and to farm organically and uh, beyond organically. And that's super important too, that the people working for and working with the Real Organic Project really get that. Be sure to apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. So once you, okay, so then you're pressing and how long are, what the, what's the fermenting time look like? I mean, how long are typically these apples fermented for? Yeah, so um, fermentation doesn't take too long um, because apples only have half the sugar of grapes. So in four to six weeks, um, it can be fully fermented. We might let it age in tank a little bit longer than that. Um, sometimes since you make cider like a wine and you might oak a wine, we will oak the cider. So sometimes it's going also through an aging or maturation okay. process. So, um, but I mean, I don't think we've, um, oh, well, like right now we're also making uh, sizer, which is when you co-ferment honey with the apple juice, it becomes sizer. Um, and so that takes longer, but, um, but basically it can ferment out in kind of four to four to six weeks. And then we, we, we do a racking in there where you're transferring it off of the sediment for that the uh -huh. yeast and the, and the juice form at the bottom of the tank. Um, and then we're letting it settle to clarify. We might add some pectic enzyme, um, but, um, and we're sampling as we, as we go along. Yeah. 
Very cool. So then you also do a brandy. How is that different? Or what's the fermentation process for that? Yeah. So um, brandy is a distilled product. You have to ferment it first. Uh-huh. So we the, we work with a distillery to do that. So we don't do that ourselves. We package it when it's done. But um, we, uh, like with the cider, we press all the apples on the farm. Uh, we take those totes of juice of the distillery. They they know we're coming so that they can have the yeast ready. So uh-huh. often a champagne yeast or some kind of white wine yeast usually certified organic and then um and then it starts fermenting right away and so once it's fully fermented because you want to get all that sugar or uh, converted to alcohol by the yeast then it can go through distillation gotcha. so and then after distillation where you're separating out the um alcohol you're getting the heart of the alcohol because there's some Oh, what they call heads and tails that you want to leave behind, um, especially in a fine crafted beverage. They're what can lead to um, some off aromas or flavors and also give headaches. So cheap okay, liquor. Yep, yep, yep. Because yep. it's not, <laughs> they're not moving all that out. Um, but, um, and then it goes to maturation and barrels. Okay. Wow. Very cool. That's yeah, and we age for at least two two years, often five years or six years. So you you have to have patience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. talk a little bit the business side, um, the management of this. So, how big is your team currently? Um, I have two full time people working with me in the orchard this season, okay. and then I'll add on one or two more in the fall. Uh, last fall, we had our our biggest harvest yet. It was um, more than two and a half times the previous year's harvest. Uh, so we, I had to bring on more people and I brought in also some, um, part-time people that was, that, that really helped fit the bill because some days we're, we're pressing and I can have, um, you know, some people who, who aren't going to be helping in the orchard, kind of doing that physical work of harvesting. They can be doing the lighter work of, of running apples through the, through the press, And then, and I can, uh, you know, keep my other people going out in the field. So, and then what does the retail side of the operation look like for how many people do you have uh, running that? Yeah. um, We don't have enough. Yeah. Yeah. We find ourselves kind of chief cook and bottle washers. Um, uh, You know, for example, I was working with my husband in the tasting room yesterday. Um, but yeah, um, marketing is just, um, huge. So my MO is to try to delegate out as much of the orchard work as I can, because Uh I mean, being the owners, we're the best people to, to market our product and we're often getting this, you know, comment of, wow, you guys are passionate about what you do, or or you're the best people to, to, to tell us about this because you're so passionate um, and yeah, we have a, we have a lot invested in this and we, and, and we've been going for a high quality product and we'd like, you know, telling people what, what, what distinguishes it. I mean, there are a lot of ciders in America that are just made out of apple juice concentrate, which is cooked down apple juice, most of which comes from China. So we're kind yeah. of at the other end of the spectrum doing a, a very handcrafted where we started out making our own trees. Yeah. So yeah, so our tasting room is a great place, but we also are distributed. We work with a distributor who moves our product throughout the state. 
Uh, we also work with a distributor in Illinois. So it's a lot of trips to a lot of different places and sampling events and, and other kinds of events where you can get more people to experience your product and, and hear your story. And then we have somebody that works on, um, on social media for us to, uh, to do a lot of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just noticed I was trying to find store locations and I'm not actually seeing anyone within 50 miles that carries us you, which is sad because there's two pretty good, uh, there's one grocery chain, small grocery chain, which is very um, high end. They do some really nice stuff. And then there also is a international food market called jungle gyms, which has literally pretty much an entire grocery store of just beverages. So um, yeah, it'd be great to get you guys in there as well because of their um, I mean, they have everything like their, their site, just their cider section of just, in, you know, cans is probably like, I don't know, 30 feet long all the way to the ceiling. Um, so yeah, um, it would be a great fit to get you in there as well. So I can put you in touch wow. with, you know, yeah, those folks. Cause I think that'd be great to see your products there. Yeah. And that's what we often ask people is where do you want to see it? And, and one thing is that we, um, distribution is done by state. So for yes. example, even though somebody's next door in Iowa, if we don't have an, a distributor in Iowa, you know, we just can't get it in there except that we can ship to residents. Mm, yeah. So we can't ship to stores, but we, on our website, we have a shipping and it goes to like almost all the, all the 50 states. I think it's like 40 or 42 and then uh, states and then uh, Washington DC as well. Yeah. So, but now what state are you in and where is Jungle Gyms? Yeah, they're in Ohio. We're in Ohio and Jungle Gyms is about 30 minutes north of Cincinnati. Um, so it's like 35 minutes from us. And um, it's world known. I mean, it's in, it's it's massive. It's incredible. I mean, they uh yeah, it's it's worth the it's worth the visit. We have there's people that come from like six or eight hours away just to visit this place. Oh wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and we're in the Whole Foods system. Yeah. So I know I'm telling people in the you know, Chicago area that if it's not on the shelf, they can certainly order it in. And now that um, Whole Foods is owned by Amazon and decision-making yep. is not at the store level or even the regional level now, it's more at the national level, corporate office, then if we're in the system, I'm assuming it could be brought in. T- well, I don't know. You know, I guess you, they'd have to have a distributor in that state. Yeah. So it, it yeah. all comes down to have. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, distribution is... Um, I mean, it's an alcoholic product. So that is, that's a, a yeah. whole bunch of other layers that you don't have. Oh, right yes. Now. Well, and then you're doing the brandy and that's a hard spirit, right? Yeah. So that's, and spirits are different than wines and ciders. So yes. Cider fits where the, I mean, cider, we have to have a winery license to make it. Yeah. And, and so, but then when you get to the retail level, we find that it's the craft beer buyer who buys the cider. So it's kind of odd. Okay. Yeah. So that's part that, of knowing your, your market and knowing who's the actual people buying things. Yeah. 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 So. All right. So let's talk a little bit about then. So of the, of the product you sell, what percentage is sold through your tasting room versus what percentage do you ship all over the nation? Oh, yeah. So I think what we ship is much smaller. The tasting room is bigger. Mm. And uh, yes, and my husband kind of has knows the numbers more than I do. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. But we'll just leave yeah. it at that. that that's yeah. what your thoughts are. Yeah. Um, well, and then so with the, the, the orchard tours, how many do you do a year? And do you try to pull people from the tasting room to get them out to the orchard? 
Yeah. So we um, have, yes, definitely people from the tasting room, but also we find since it's posted on Facebook events and events in Madison and people from Chicago pick up on it. Um, people come who've never um, had our ciders before. I've even had people come who've never had cider uh, oh, at wow. all uh-huh. before. Yeah. Um, and same with some of the classes we do, because I'll do cocktail classes during the winter at our tasting room. Yep. I have uh, three different cider classes coming up and people will see them on events and come. Um, so, uh, but we really like connecting people more to our brand. And so when they get to meet the trees that make the cider, um, they, they develop more of that. And literally on the tours, you get a wine glass. And as we go through the orchard, you get to taste ciders that those trees made. And even so when cool. we start at blossom time, so people can see just some of the, the beauty of that. Yep. They see the magenta colored flowers that our red flushed apple varieties um, make. So we do a rosé cider uh-huh. uh, with those varieties. And uh, and then it, we, so we have several during blossom tour um, or blossom time. I'll do one on Earth Day. It's on a Saturday this year. So uh, we, it was on Friday last year. So we, we take advantage of that to focus more on organic apple production and, and what uh-huh. that means and why we do that. Um, and then I do one a month during the summer and then in the fall, we'll do several so they can, uh, on a Sunday, so they can actually see the apple pressing uh-huh, and then we cool. can pre-order our cheese and shark food rebox that comes with a bottle of cider of your choice. And you bring your own picnic blanket or lawn chairs and just hang out on this lovely landscape in what's known as the driftless region of Wisconsin. Very cool. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about the um, so the business management. Are you and your husband doing that? Do you have a business manager who kind of manages behind the scenes? No, we we manage that. Um, okay. I do I do a lot of the QuickBooks work. Unfortunately, yep. <laughs> using yep. a very old computer with a very old QuickBooks thing and an accountant. So I'll take kind of you know raw yep. data for her to a final P and L and and balance sheet. Um, but uh, but yeah, but otherwise uh, we're we're doing um, we're doing the, the the brunt of that. Yeah. What would you say if you could start all over again? What would you change, um, kind of, as you were building this business? Mm. Oh, um, I mean, there's lots of small decisions along the way. Um, you know, in some ways, people would love to be able to come out to the farm and also find that we have retail here. Uh, uh, we didn't buy this piece of land uh, knowing what we were going to do with it. We just wanted yeah. to do things organic, have a finished product and, and bought a lovely piece of land. So it's not, it, I mean, we're in um, this roly poly part of Wisconsin with rock outcroppings and things. And so we've converted crop ground to prairie. And I literally, the kind of the, the flattest place for parking would be where I have prairie. <laughs> so, okay. It's not flat, but it's just less sloping. Um, so it's just not really kind of set up for any sort of open to the public uh, retail retail options. Um, but but that would be nice if we could if if we could have um, you know yeah. done that here also on a very small tiny remote road. Um, so that, that I guess that would probably be the biggest thing uh, since we went down this path. Um, kind of having that retail option. The thing is, is that the state laws uh, when you're dealing with alcohol can really get <laughs> really get in the way because then you find out 
uh, we did for a while have a license that we could sell bottles of cider right from the farm. But then we were also moving towards opening our own cidery and tasting room in Madison. And once you get that license, you can't have one on the farm. And people ask why. And it's like, who knows? You just can't. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So, so getting people out to the farm and getting them experience that has been a huge part of it. And because you just don't have the way to make it easy, it just makes it more challenging. Yeah, right, right. So then you are focused more on, on distribution. And then, I mean, having that, the, the I mean, the, the tasting room is where you definitely have much bigger margins than if you go through uh, distribution. Because yeah. I'll say to people, when if you see the bottle on the shelf for $10, we're getting just under half of that. Wow. So yeah, yeah, because because the the, the <laughs> what's ironic is that we share a building with um, the the um, kind of a specialty um, retail store, grocery store. Yeah. Um, they they sell more of our product than any other place, uh, and, and and they're just open a whole lot more because we have more like kind of winery room hours. Yeah, um, but yeah. we're in the same. But they have to buy it from our distributor who to and they order it from from the distributor who then has to pick up pallet loads of product from us and take it to their warehouse um, two hours away towards Milwaukee. And then it goes in the warehouse and it comes back out and, and gets delivered to them. So <laughs> those, are, those are the I mean, I, and, it is, and that's the and loss. We're, we're in the same building and we share a lot of the same space. And so from our kind of back end where our cidery is, it is, it is literally just a dozen steps to their cooler where the, where the cider's on the shelf. But so this, um, it's highly inefficient, let's just say, but the distributor yeah. gets their 33% margin. So for doing that, um, wow. and then of course, or, or the restaurant has their, has their percent markup. Yeah. So, so I mean, but if, if people are putting vegetables through distribution and they're going through a broker, you know, it's, you're going to be paying. I mean, there's margins all in that too, hence CSAs and farmers markets. So our retail, our, our retail space, having our own, you know, tasting room is like, you know, being at the farmer's market where you're buying direct, you know, yeah. from the, you know. yeah. we, we pay a few more licenses and fees, obviously, but yeah. Uh, so and, and alcohol has always been taxed. So, I mean, a lot of the country's income in the earlier days was from alcohol, uh, so pro, you know, prohibition was a bad idea for a number of things, but <laughs> the government yeah. also got left. So correct. Yeah. So then the reason why it has to go to distributor, is that because of how the laws are set up that you have to sell through a distributor or is that the distributor's agreement with you that anyone who buys will buy directly through them? Yeah, no, you do need to, there's the, what they call the three tier system that started after prohibition. Prohibition, um, gotcha. because it, during prohibition, it got you know things went underground and they became vertically integrated, so and monopolized, and you had um, the mafia and other dark world involved, and so to break all that up, then uh, they developed the kind of the, the the manufacturing level, the distribution level, and then the retail level, and mm. you can't like if you're a distributor, you can't own. A manufacturer, um, and if you're a retailer, you can't also be a distributor. Uh, so they, they've broken it all all up, and um, and then each state gets to kind of uh, do it the, the way they want to. So, for example, shipping 
wine or um, ciders into other states is all according to those state rules, if not even county or city rules. Wow. So it's very, it's very complicated when you get, at least for us, we don't, we use a service that, that goes, that does all of that for you. So they pay, you know, they do the monthly reporting that states require and pay the fees and, and all of that. And then we pay them um, yep. for that service. So, so that's how we can, we can legally ship. Gotcha. And wow. For the cider spirits, we're not able to. Spirits is under a whole nother set of rules. And same with beer. You can't just go out and ship beer all over the place. So. Wow. Now you do a fair amount of value added products too. Like on your website, you do some, um, I think some different, maybe like even candies. Yeah. Yeah. So we work with a local chocolate maker who does an apple brandy caramel for us. It's coated in a chocolate truffle. Um, We, yeah. And so that's sold online also. It's sold at her company's Madison Chocolate Company, and it's also sold there. Uh, and then we also do a, a brandy maple syrup. And uh, that's where we buy certified organic maple syrup from Northern Wisconsin. And then it, it's basically spiked <laughs> with some of our two-year aged apple brandy and can take breakfast to a whole new level or pour it over some ice cream, or we use it in cocktails and cook with it. Uh so it's it's a, a very multi-purpose um, product we yeah. found out. So then you also on the for the tasting room, how have you driven traffic to get more people in in, in the door? Yeah, um, definitely uh, by increasing our social media presence and um, also oh we've done things like uh, some discount coupons to apartments in the area because there's a there's a it's in a high population area um, and so and definitely we have a newsletter and that that certainly attracts people so and then we get a lot of word of mouth so yeah because um, I make it a practice when people come to our tasting room um, I ask if I don't recognize them oh have you been here before and yeah and uh, so, so more and more, and then if they haven't, oh, how did you learn of us? So, so yeah. more and more as, as people have been there before, or they hear we're doing live music, or, uh, you know, they saw it in the, you know, local announcements about that. Um, a friend told them about it. Um, their, their, their adult children have been there, or their parents have been there. You yeah. Know? So, it, yeah. Or they, they shop in that, the, the store that we're, Co uh, sharing the uh, same building with they, um, and, I mean they're a much bigger space than we are. But um, oh yeah, we we shop there, and we just think we just have to stop in sometimes. So yeah, yes, yeah, so it's very it's very multi multifaceted. I I think uh, one thing um, that we didn't really have much of uh, is like a, a marketing and advertising budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think that's you know something that's a, a weakness that. Um, that we should really have kind of paid more attention to. Um, I, I would say to the, you know, the pandemic is really, um, I mean, kind of the pandemic and, and climate change have just been two of our, our major threats and, you know, climate change, of course, is continuing, but um, so, I mean, trying to get any patterns or, you know, figuring out numbers and what directions things were going all just kind of got knocked back down to, yeah, <laughs> wait I mean, it felt like you were climbing this hill and getting to a point where you were kind of, kind of move at a, at a more consistent pace. And then you got kind of shoved back down the hill and you got to, and, and then you got to climb it again, but the hill kind of changed also. So it's yes. a, 
kind of a, a different path, um, path upwards. Cause especially, I mean, Oh, our, our biggest accounts in Chicago, they're just not there anymore. So, you know, going from four restaurants down to one and they were oh, wow. you know, just a lot. Yeah. We private label ciders for them. So um, yeah. And, and we are about to open a, they were going to open a fifth featuring our, our products. So um, yeah. So, so things really, really changed a lot. Yeah. Um, and everyone's had to kind of be creative with that. Fortunately, our, our retail space has a lot of open air. We have a lot of natural light, but also we have walls that roll up and a greenhouse that has roll up walls. And so it was great because we had all this yeah. natural air ventilation. So, yeah, yeah. You continue to have people in. Well, very yeah. cool. What would you say your favorite tool is? You did mention the tractor a little bit. Is that, uh, is that what you're sticking with? Yeah, the tractor. And then I also got a new sprayer, um, which I think helps me be more efficient with the product I'm putting out there, a little more knowledgeable about, you know, with the new one, um, you know, get trying to get the pounds per acre amount of ingredient per acre out there uh, most judiciously. So um, orchard spraying just needs a total overhaul anyway, uh, just because trees have gotten so much smaller, but the, the kind of sprayers that we're using were designed for big, huge trees. So, I mean, um, but I I can't change that, but I see, you know, I follow research a lot. I've been very involved in, I used to be on the board with the organic farming research foundation and and really believe that if, if you are doing research to improve organic farming, you're improving farming period. So Yeah. So I think, um, you know, all growers, whether you're doing it on your own or, you know, your own kind of R and D or, um, I mean, we just can really help improve farming and make organic farming the norm. Um, I mean, that's my sort of big picture vision, if you will, is that this should be the norm. It shouldn't be the, um, the, the minority, but, um, yeah, I think, um, constantly trying to improve and following, research and advocating for research that can help uh, improve our systems uh, through new information and knowledge, not just products. The biopesticide market is just exploding, which is, which is great to see. Um, But um, yeah, the more knowledge we can get to improve our systems, I think the better off the planet is, (laughs) the easier our jobs are and the more enjoyable. Yeah, I know every single year you see something new coming out in the biopest market, which is great. but uh, yeah, so it's it's awesome to see that. I think some great herbicides would be great. I mean, we are starting to see some, but you know, getting our hands on better ones would be great as well. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's exciting to see what's happening right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for us, sometimes those, I mean, I've got actual wildflowers growing in tree rows. So not every, yeah. not my vegetation is bad. And I have and I'm always going for diversity. Um, so keeping that orchard floor, as we call it, diverse with clovers and and I'm always trying to keep things. I, I don't mow everything constantly. I try to alternate yep. the mowing. That's something seeding and flowering that can keep beneficial insects and pollinators, which uh-huh. we've been concerned with pollinator habitat for 20 years now. And, and boy, that paid off economically last year because the honeybee keepers that are not on my farm, but neighboring farms just hadn't gotten their bees out uh, when our early blossoms started last year. And they started with a bang oh, wow. um, because all 
sudden after a long, cool, wet spring, it just surged into the 90s and went fast, like just a few days. And it was all the wild, all the wild bees that did the job because there weren't weren't any honeybees around. So hats off to those wild pollinators. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really great. Well, I appreciate your time today sharing. Um, it's been great to hear about your farm, kind of the struggles, kind of like the growth pains and uh, just what you've built up there. It's always inspiring to see someone who's, you know, kept at it. And because how many years have you been, when, when did you plant the first apple tree? Oh, first trees went in, I think the first few went in in 2006. And, okay, uh, yeah. 2008. So, and, and I've, we're the first, block of trees I planted, but had like 10 or 11 varieties. And now I'm down to, down to five just because you winnow yeah. out some that aren't working well. So it's, it's, it's been a huge experiment and it still yeah. is. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Michael. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led movement that provides an add-on certification held by over a thousand certified organic family-owned operations across North America. Real Organic Project strives to uplift farms working within the spirit, not just the letter of organic principles. Real Organic certified farmers use practices that are centered around the foundational organic principles of soil-based crop production and pasture-based livestock agriculture. To remain accessible to all types of farmers, Real Organic Project fundraises year-round to keep this certification available at no cost to farmers. You can apply today at realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. That is realorganicproject.org forward slash thriving farmer. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.